The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 10th of November. In this COVID update, Associate Professor Paul Griffin will cover the new COVID wave comprising BQ1, XBB and other variants and what our frontline response should look like. He will discuss whether a fifth booster is worth having along with children's vaccination developments and an update on the antivirals. Hi, Paul Griffin here. I'm an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist, and I'm here today to give you another update on COVID-19. I do have some disclosures. I've been a principal investigator on eight COVID vaccine studies now. I do a little bit of speaking work for, for some of those companies listed and am also on a number of medical advisory boards, but the content of this talk is all my own. This is what I'm going to talk about today, go through some data on cases and vaccine uptake, talk a fair bit about vaccination because it's a pretty challenging area at the moment, touch on some therapies, of course, cover off on the new subvariants and finish with some recommendations in a conclusion. So what is the current situation in Australia? And it is very clear we're talking about COVID a lot less. We're reporting these figures a lot less. So a lot of people don't really know what's happening with cases at the moment. And you can see uh, over the course of this year, we've had a number of very significant waves. It's being described as three waves, but it looks a bit more like four to me. But in more recent times, our case numbers have remained relatively low. That is until the last few weeks. And of course, we also have to factor in that we're probably not finding the bulk of cases these days as our perception of risk has declined. A lot less people are testing. People have said to me, can't be COVID. There's none of that around at the moment. But we're also not reporting some of the testing that's being done at home as well. So we're probably finding a lower proportion than ever before. Unfortunately, in recent times, Despite that, we've actually seen those rates go up. So uh, over the past week, over 40,000 cases reported, an increase of 6,000. And our effective R order, or RF, has gone up from 1.06 to 1.11. And of course, we know that once that gets over one, that indicates that case numbers are climbing. And that's reflected there with those increases compared to the previous weeks over the uh, whole country, an increase of 17%. And you can see that most states have seen a, an increase to a variable degree. And if we look at that a little bit closer, this is a, a figure from uh, somebody who posts these data on Twitter. In, in more recent times, you can see that the case numbers have certainly gone up. And just to show how we compare with the rest of the world, this is from a, a month or two ago, but still holds true, of course, that we've actually had a fairly high number of cases globally. But in this case, we have to take into account that up until recently, we probably found a high proportion of our cases with good access to testing and obviously had a good healthcare system, so reported those cases fairly well. Of course, that's not the case anymore. And if we look at... Uh, 
cases in hospital and in intensive care. We have seen the hospitalisation start to creep up at least a little bit, but very fortunately intensive care cases haven't really climbed yet and there's a number of explanations for that. Uh, our vaccination rate has contributed to a degree and this so-called hybrid immunity that a lot of people challenge as a, as a concept which just really says that the best way of being protected is actually to be vaccinated first and then if you do still get a breakthrough infection that serves to further increase your immunity to a degree of course impacted by the emergence of new subvariants, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And deaths, very fortunately, also has not increased in recent times, uh, which is a, a good thing. But having said that, it's not zero, of course, so we do still need to take this virus very seriously. And just, again, coming back to that graph with the other figures there, you can see on this that uh, not only the weekly cases have gone up a little bit in blue at the top, and uh, we've also seen hospitalisations plateau will start to climb, um, and the, the deaths actually look like they may be starting to increase on this graph as well. So if we look at the most recent figures, obviously the trend is not in the right direction. But I think it's really important to point out what's happened with the cumulative mortality. And over the course of the pandemic, despite obviously there being a number of deaths, particularly in recent months, we've actually done very well. And a lot of people ask why that is. I think the fact that we kept the virus out while we waited to get people vaccinated has helped. Our management of cases has obviously been uh, up there with some of the best. So when we compare our mortality rates to other countries, we are still one of the best. We look at vaccination, however, and because it's such a complicated landscape in terms of who's eligible for what, uh, tracking the figures is even more complicated as well. So this is vaccination dose coverage by age over the estimated uh, eligible population. And I think what this shows overall is that we've still got too many people that aren't up to date with their vaccines. If we look at the younger age groups, the, the red or orange is the unvaccinated. You can see that's still very significant, approaching even 50% in those, those younger groups. The green is two doses only, and we know that um, once we get particularly over 30 or perhaps 49, depending on which guideline, two doses simply is not enough. And so that green really should be almost gone by those age groups, but it clearly isn't. Um, and in terms of those older age groups who really should have had at least four, uh, you can see that those lines are still well below where we'd want them. So we do have a lot of work to be done in terms of vaccination coverage. And if we break that down by different age groups, I guess the most concerning thing for me is that eligible population with a fourth dose 30 plus years, and you look at that, those rates of people who are fully up to date is universally below 50% across the country. And as we do see these new subvariants emerge and case numbers starting to climb, and we've removed all our other restrictions, vaccination becomes even more important. And so having those booster rates where they are is not a good thing for what we're likely to see. And so I'm going to talk about vaccines now and some of these rules. And if it appears confusing here, I think that's because that's what the guidelines are at the moment. And in some spots, I may seem to contradict myself, but unfortunately, the guidelines do that at the moment in certain areas as well. So I think it's important to point out that ATAGI changed the definition from fully vaccinated to up to date in February. Uh, obviously, this was to prepare for, for varying schedules across different ages and at different times. Um, and being overdue means you can't currently have a, a vaccine digital certificate, which is obviously not required as much as it was previously. But I think people need to understand that up-to-date is a fairly dynamic concept and that one that's a bit challenging to understand at the moment. 
So I thought I'd go through via age group. And so the youngest in the population do have access to vaccines. And obviously this was very strongly discussed at the time. Um, the risk of severe disease in these younger groups is less. That's very clear. But there's been a, a lot of things done with these vaccines to make them even safer for those groups. And a lot of that is to do with dose. So I thought I'd list those here. So the Moderna vaccine is recommended according to Itagi. Uh, in the younger group, two doses, eight weeks apart. It's a quarter of the adult dose at 25 micrograms. And one confusing element is that the, that does come with a blue cap, as does the bivalent vaccine. So you need to be mindful of that. And they've actually suggested storing those in separate locations to make sure there's no mixing up of those. Um, the Pfizer vaccine is also approved, however, hasn't yet made it into the ATAGI guidelines. That's a really low dose compared to the adult one, three micrograms versus 30 uh, in their vaccine for people 12 years and older. And, and this vaccine is recommended, and I've highlighted this here, for some children. So it's certainly not recommended across the board. And this is those children who are at higher risk. And one of the challenges with all of these guidelines is defining who is at higher risk or who is severely immunocompromised. So I've listed that there. They're fairly obvious medical comorbidities that would place someone of any age group at significant risk of disease from this infection, also those that are less likely to respond fully to the vaccine. And so I think that one is, is fairly straightforward in terms of those children who should be recommended to get that vaccine. If we go to the next age group, 5 to 11 years, and on the right are the pictures of my kids getting their vaccine the first day uh, they were able to. I took them to get their vaccine on January the 10th this year, and they got their booster uh, at the appropriate time uh, on March the 11th uh, with uh, little coercion, I can assure you, other than the lollipops that you can see there. Um, Again, the, the doses are less than adults. The intervals are a little bit longer than we've recommended for adults. So both of them are two doses, eight weeks apart. And a lot of people have been talking about boosters in this age group. And uh, as of a week or two ago, they are actually available, but once again, restricted to those at high risk. So kids in that age group can get a booster if they have an increased risk of severe disease, severely immunocompromised, disability with significant or complex health needs, uh, or complex or multiple health conditions. Um, but here's one of those issues that's a bit challenging. It, it, then the guidelines then go on to say for those that are severely immunocompromised, a third primary dose from two months after dose two was recommended and the first booster dose for this cohort will actually be their fourth dose. So um, this is a bit of a tricky landscape and I would probably defer to the second line there, which is those kids who are unlikely to respond to the vaccine probably should have had four by now but of course this is probably in the realm of uh, uh, specialist advice for the people managing their severe immunosuppressing condition. Um, 12 to 15 year olds basically the same as 5 to 11 year olds. Pfizer 30 micrograms two doses and here's where the interval starts to change three to eight weeks apart determined a little bit by what's happening in the community in terms of that interval probably a greater response the longer we can leave it but if there's lots of cases around we have tended to recommend bringing that forward a little bit in those that are still getting their primary course to make sure their their maximum protection happens a bit quicker uh, Moderna similar story uh, same as the adult dose in this age group which is double the the 5 to 11 year old dose uh, two doses or six to 11 year olds in this case two doses four to eight weeks apart and boosters after three months are available for this age group as well with similar risk uh, uh, categories there, severely immunocompromised, disability with significant complex health needs uh, or medical conditions. And again, the booster at the moment is the Pfizer vaccine. And, and basically, um, 
largely speaking, the 16 years and older have fitted into the adult guidelines, although some of these vaccines aren't approved for less than 18, so there are some nuances there for the 16 to 18 year olds. Uh, clearly a booster is recommended for all three months after the last primary dose is the due date, that those people will no longer be considered up to date. Uh, and in terms of that winter booster we've heard so much about, that is actually recommended for this group, so for everyone 16 and over, which really applies to those uh, 16 to, to 30 or 50, severely immunocompromised medical condition that increases the risk of severe illness or disability. So those people really should have had four doses so far. And so for that winter booster, that really constitutes a fourth dose for most. But, and I'll come back to this, for those that are severely immunocompromised, we made the primary course three doses. So their second booster is actually their fifth dose. And a lot of people don't know that there's a, a group that can and should have had five doses by now. Um, and we've updated this information, expanded eligibility of that winter booster. And most recently in July, we did that to address the, the last big wave made up mostly of BA5. And so what that recommendation is now, if you're 50 or older, because obviously age is a risk factor for more severe disease, 50 or older, irrespective of your medical comorbidities or um, status of your immune system, you should have had that winter booster. 30 to 49, some tricky wording here, you can receive it. The benefit is less certain, is how that's been documented. But of course, if those people have those risk factors, they should definitely have it. And 16 and over again comes down to, to those risk factors. At the moment, if you don't have one of those, so if you're less than 30, not severely immunocompromised or high risk or have a disability, you can't access a booster. And this is being talked about a lot because some of these people had their, their, um, their first two doses and maybe their booster a long time ago. We know immunity wanes, particularly when we're talking about new subvariants. So a lot of people in this population, in those age groups without medical problems, maybe because they perceive they're high risk, maybe because of their occupation, are wanting a booster at this stage, struggling to access it. So that's something that's being looked at. The definition of severely immunocompromised is a little challenging and it's relevant because it comes up in a number of the, the guidelines and everywhere it does, the target links back to, to this document, which was relating to people who are eligible for that third primary dose, but a lot of other things have been linked back to this document. So these people are not only eligible for that third primary dose, they should have then had a booster and they should have had their winter booster as well, which is how we get to that five doses. And so I think it's important to understand that not every immune suppressing condition meets this definition. I won't uh, get people to go through that in detail in this talk. We, it's uh, linked in a lot of documents and freely available from ATAGI. But really it's people whose immune systems are very significantly compromised either due to primary immunosuppressing conditions or, or immunosuppressive therapy for very significant autoimmune or malignant conditions. It then gets even more complicated because we add in biologicals and people will know we've got a lot of biologicals these days. Some really affect your ability to respond to vaccination, particularly that top line there. Uh, so 2A, right at the top, anti-CD20 antibodies. That really compromises your ability to mount a response to a vaccine or an infection for that matter. So those people definitely meet that definition. And you can see at the bottom there's uh, quite a few biologics that obviously have an impact on your immune system but don't necessarily switch it off enough that you need to be considered severely immunocompromised. And uh, those IL-6 antibodies, for example, that we actually use to treat COVID, uh, you know, they're really good examples of uh, um, antibody therapies that don't put you in that severely immunocompromised category. But then the guidelines further go on to make it really complicated. The third dose is recommended for people taking multiple immunosuppressants where the cumulative effect is considered to be severely immunosuppressive. 
and this is obviously quite a common occurrence where people are on maybe a bit of steroid, a bit of methotrexate plus one of these biologicals. It's really hard to know if they meet that definition or not. Of course, expert advice can be sought from uh, immunology or infectious diseases as to whether that, that meets that definition. So if we look at severely immunocompromised uh, across the age ranges, and again, it's pretty confusing when you start to look at this. At the bottom is the easy one, over 16, severely immunocompromised according to that definition. Two doses, third primary dose, first booster, second booster equals five. And you can see that there's quite a big range of different recommendations. And this same sort of table is reproduced quite a lot in a number of different ATAGI documents. So if you're seeing people who are immunocompromised, maybe familiarise yourself with that one. So what we do with people that have had COVID, which of course is a lot of people, and more recently a lot of people won't even know they've had COVID, the recommendation at the moment is that people should wait three months from a COVID infection before getting their next recommended vaccine dose. And again, this is a little bit contentious at the moment, in my opinion. Uh, it's been said this is the case to optimise protection. The longer after, uh, the better perhaps that response will be. But we know that that's not necessarily in keeping with what we've seen and we know that AHPPC changed the reinfection period from 12 to four weeks so that if someone got unwell at five weeks, we'd have to test them as if they were presenting for the first time and regard them as a new infection because reinfections were happening quite commonly. So I think these two definitions are a little bit inconsistent and I know a number of other countries have recommended in their vaccination guidelines once people recover from COVID they can return to their scheduled vaccine uh, recommendations and so this is something that I think will be updated at some point but at the moment that's what's recommended. I just wanted to quickly touch on Novavax because this is a vaccine a lot of people still don't know a lot about and I think there's a big misunderstanding and Basically, this is a protein-based vaccine. This is the, the third type of vaccine that was approved in our country. We had the two mRNA vaccines. We also had the viral vector vaccine, AstraZeneca. A lot of people were waiting for Novavax as a, what was considered a more traditional approach to making a vaccine, where we just make these proteins in the lab. We combine it with an adjuvant to boost that response. Bit of a delay getting this one approved just because there were some logistical challenges with the clinical trials, not because it didn't work. And I particularly like talking about this vaccine because I was the principal investigator on the phase one trials. So this vaccine started its journey in, in uh, Australia. And it is actually approved for primary and booster doses. A lot of the commentary around it was you can only have this if you've had a nasty reaction to mRNA, for example, and that's actually not the case. It's available. Um, you can use it from 12 years of age as a primary dose, 18 years as a booster. And a lot of people have come to us and said, oh, my doctor said I need a letter to be able to get Novavax or I need to have some kind of approval for that. But it's actually available both as a primary vaccination course but also as a booster for those people over 18 years of age. And a good one to consider. Some data has suggested it might be holding up a little bit better against some of the new subvariants. has a slightly different spectrum of uh, adverse events. It's not free of adverse events, of course. Unfortunately, no vaccine is. So one just to be mindful of. It is around, is available, and that's what I had for my fourth dose. So onto the Omicron-specific boosters. And again, another rapidly changing uh, area of uh, COVID at the moment. Uh, so we actually had the first updated vaccine or improved vaccine approved some time ago and available on the 10th of October in our country. And this was the Moderna bivalent vaccine. And by bivalent means we've got two targets in it basically. So we've included the original or Wuhan strain and added in an updated target in BA1. And the, the reason the bivalent uh, approach was 
was chosen is it's thought that having those two targets maybe gives broader cross protection, so not only a better response against what's included in it in BA1, but maybe will be a little bit better even against the, the new subvariants we know we have and maybe some we don't. So um, in terms of where we use that, it's not recommended as an additional dose at the moment. So those same recommendations I just went through for those ages hold true. So if people are able to get a booster dose, if they're eligible and not up to date, they can now choose to get this um, updated bivalent Omicron specific booster. So again, it's not an extra dose for anybody at this stage. Pfizer actually also have an updated vaccine available, approved by the TGA only a week or so ago, um, and similar in terms of how it's uh, put together. And some of the studies have suggested that the uh, response to BA1 in terms of neutralising antibodies, and we know those laboratory studies are a little bit flawed and don't necessarily translate into clinical efficacy changes, but basically almost twice the response in those lab studies. And we also saw with the, the BA1 bivalent vaccines, better responses against BA4 and BA5. Not quite double, not to the same degree, but certainly better than the original uh, vaccines. There's been a lot of talk about some recent studies that have failed to demonstrate a benefit with those updated vaccines, but we think it was just what those studies were looking at, how they were powered, and they were a little bit too small to draw those conclusions. So we do think they're better, at least a little bit. Um, there's a lot of other updated vaccines uh, under different stages of development. I guess the next iterative improvement is BA5 in those vaccines instead of BA1, and then a lot more to come. And I'll quickly touch on those in a little bit of a talk about so-called second-generation vaccines. So. I think it's pretty obvious that our current vaccines work tremendously well. They've made a huge difference in our cumulative mortality is one way of showing that, for example, but they're not perfect. And there's a lot of properties here, and I won't go through all of them. A lot of properties would like to improve with a new vaccine. I guess the main ones there are around stopping infection, so being transmission blocking or giving sterilising immunity, but also not need to be updated quite as frequently as it looks like our current vaccines are with, if anything, a more rapid rate of emergence of new subvariants. And so in terms of the vaccines under development, there's around 150 now. These numbers um, don't necessarily add up to that because there's a bit of overlap, but there's around 150 vaccines in various stages of clinical trials at the moment. And perhaps the most exciting, in my opinion, and there's been a lot of talk about this, particularly in some Asian countries in recent times, is a thought of a, an inhaled or an intranasal vaccine where we're delivering the, the antigen via the same route that the pathogen or the virus gets in. And the thought there is we get better mucosal immunity, we get immunity that's better able to stop the virus getting in in the first place. And a lot of the talk here, and this is mostly from animal studies, is that this won't replace our traditional approaches but will be a really good uh, supplement to that be really complementary, so you'll need an intramuscular, at least primary course, supplement that with an intranasal or inhaled vaccine to get broad cross-protection, get the, particularly the protection from severe disease that our traditional vaccines are given, and maybe have a little bit more local immunity to stop the virus getting in in the first place. Some discussion last week that the Oxford AstraZeneca candidate, or the Oxford candidate I should say, didn't perform very well when given intranasally. One of the challenges we face is it's quite hard to get a strong enough response via that route. So there needs to be some clever tweaking to, to try and address that limitation. And, and the bottom one there, which is called uh, Tetherex, uh, which I'm running the early phase clinical trials, has a really clever approach to doing that. So it's a bit like the traditional adenoviral vectored vaccines that we see, like the Oxford AstraZeneca candidate, 
They don't reproduce, but what these guys have done is make it that this viral vector vaccine is able to undergo a single cycle of replication, which probably gives you about a hundredfold increase in, in delivery of the spike protein at that site, which again overcomes some of those limitations in terms of getting a strong enough response. Still in phase one, so we can't comment on how well it's working, but it's hoped these sort of technological advances will, will help to overcome some of the limitations with our current vaccines. And just looking at vaccines in the future, I guess the main thing we'd like is a vaccine that protects you against all strains, subvariants of COVID-19, or maybe even all coronaviruses. And that's what a lot of people are working on. Um, if we look to the bottom there, we've never achieved that for an endemic virus. We've been trying to do the same thing with influenza for a very long time, but there's lots of really good technologies that are being applied here, which is basically like combining, we've got a bivalent vaccine, but I guess multiplying that by, by many fold and including lots of different targets maybe we can get a broad enough cross-protective response that we won't need to update our vaccines. And so there's lots of work happening on that and we'll wait to see. I guess the other advance in uh, vaccines is the combination vaccines. And, you know, we saw flu come back with a vengeance. It's very clear we're going to have to make sure we keep up, people up to date with their flu vaccines. Lots of the leading manufacturers have combined their COVID candidates with flu. Some have even included COVID flu and influenza. Uh, it's likely we'll have some of these available next year. The biggest challenge, of course, is timing because COVID isn't necessarily seasonal. Our huge peak last summer demonstrated that. So we're not exactly sure when we'd use that, but maybe as a way of limiting how many boosters people need moving forward, uh, that combined vaccine will help with that. Just touching on therapies, again, a rapidly changing landscape. We've had a lot of our antibody therapies we relied on, particularly at the start of the year, rendered no longer effective by, by some of the subvariants. You can see citrovimab, uh, not really effective against BA2 and even more so BA4 and 5. Uh, remdesivir is our uh, intravenous adenosine analogue, uh, is still effective. Some work not only using that on people in hospital, but using that uh, out in the community to to treat people early, some work trying to uh, give that as an oral agent. And of course we have our two oral PBS approved agents in Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, which I'll quickly go through. Really important for people to understand, not a replacement for vaccination. The key is to start those early, and that's where not encouraging people to keep getting tested is a bit of a problem. Can't use them in children, not safe in pregnancy. Paxlovid has the drug-drug interactions. Um, recent evidence shows these work even better in the elderly. Um, and indications sequentially expanded it with, uh, with our most recent very significant wave. So you need to have a PCR, medically supervised rat. So that's why we need people to keep getting tested in the labs. Need to have a sign or symptom, not need hospitalisation. Anyone over 70 can get these, no questions asked. Over 50 uh, or Indigenous and over 30 need some risk factors. If you're immunocompromised, um, moderate to severely, over 18 makes you eligible. Uh, a brief comparison here. A lot of people have tended to compare the efficacy. Really important to point out, we don't have any head-to-head -head trials, and so it's not really the right thing to say one is better than the other in terms of efficacy. Just the highlights there, can't use either in pregnancy. Paxlovid is the one that is boosted with ritonavir, so it does have a lot of drug-drug interactions. Lots of really good ways of, of, of checking those. There's a, a Liverpool interaction checker, which is really useful. Um, and a lot of talk in recent times in the panoramic study that molnupiravir 
didn't work. But really that was an endpoint that happened in such little numbers in that trial, they couldn't establish a difference. And there was a, an improvement in recovery of four days in people on that therapy, which was a secondary endpoint, but I think very significant. And it's been interesting in our country, we've actually utilised about four times as much molnupiravir as Paxlovid, I think because of those challenges with the drug-drug interactions particularly. So I think we do need to make sure people understand that while it is onerous to have to check that, there are some ways that make it a bit easier, like some of those uh, online checkers, or there's even an app uh, that you can use for that. And if you look at our prescriptions of those, you can see big spike there with our last big wave, but there is certainly an upward trend in recent times, and those people, of course, have to be eligible, so that does mean there are more eligible people in our population right now. And if you look at the, the age group, of course, most of those people are 70 to 99, but there are a few people in that younger age group who have had access who, who I would think would have been eligible. It's important also to point out that we do have some things we can do for people who, who won't respond to vaccination. And if we come back to those CD20 antibodies, for example, those people, even after their five doses, often will mount an immune response that's insufficient for them to be protected. And we actually have a, a way of protecting those people now. It's thought that maybe 2% of our population will fall into that category. And those people not only don't respond to vaccination, so don't enjoy the, the benefits of that protection, but they're also inherently at high risk from uh, infectious diseases as well due to their compromised uh, immune system. So we actually have something we can give for pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, and that's the medication called Evusheld, which is a, a combination of two long-acting monoclonal antibodies, which are difficult to say, so I'll let you read that at the bottom there. So these are fully recombinant, full human antibodies with a non-human target. So a lot of people translate experiences with other antibodies that actually have an effector arm on something to do with our immune system and people might get febrile reactions, etc. So this is a fully human antibody with a non-human target. So we don't really see those same type of reactions. And it's been tweaked. It's some really clever um, strategies here to extend its half-life and to make sure there's no uh, effective function. So again, to reduce the chance of, uh, of those sort of reactions. And this is basically available for people that fall into that severely immunocompromised category. Those people who are eligible for five doses probably still won't respond and so can use this as a way of protecting them. It lasts about six months. It's an intramuscular injection. Um, and a lot of talk at the moment is that these new subvariants aren't protected uh, by this product, but really there's only uh, one that's uh, showing a significantly reduced efficacy, and that's BA 4.6, which we're not seeing a lot of. So this is certainly something we should still look at using because it's a really good way of protecting those that perhaps are most vulnerable in our community. So just quickly covering the situation more broadly, uh, a lot of people are saying the pandemic's over, a lot of people have misunderstood the messaging from the WHO that the finish line is perhaps in sight and what we need to do to cross that is intensify our efforts. A lot of people have said that means pandemic's over but if you look here we're at uh, enormous numbers of cases, uh, 500,000 per day, uh, over 2.5 million cases per week still. And that's with all the under-reporting that we're likely seeing. Uh, nearly 2,000 deaths per day, or definitely over 10,000 a week, which is just a tragedy. Uh, and we definitely remain uh, in that pandemic declaration. If you look at situation by region, uh, and this doesn't really have the resolution to show the increasing cases we've seen in some countries, you can see it's still very significant there in many. And the reason we've seen some case numbers go up 
in some countries, including our own, is the emergence of some new subvariants. So I'll very quickly go through those. Uh, XBB has probably accounted for an increase in cases in Singapore and India, and fortunately the situation in Singapore seems to have stabilised. That it hasn't climbed to give us a wave like we've seen with some of the preceding Omicron subvariants, but it's still been significant. And BQ, particularly in Europe and the USA, um, there's a lot of new subvariants now, and the nomenclature gets really confusing. And some have referred to it as a variant soup because there's just so many; it's hard to tease out what's what. I think the two most important ones are BQ and XBB, and they're giving them these funny names as well. So BQ1 and BQ1.1, which is called Cerberus. So these have come down from BA5, 6% or more by now of uh, isolates worldwide in over 65 countries, approaching 10% of isolates in Australia, but our surveillance has declined. So we may not have uh, a good handle on those figures. XBB is a recombinant, so we know these sort of new variants can arise when the virus reproduces, it makes mistakes. Uh, if those mistakes confer an advantage, because they're, for example, in the spike protein, so it changes the virus, so our immune response doesn't recognise it so well, we kind of select for that. But the other way is that different subvariants can combine to, to basically share some of these mutations, and that's what XBB is. It's a recombinant of BA 2.10.1 and 2.75 and has 14 extra mutations compared with BA2. Numbers are lower, 2% globally, 35 countries, and approaching 5% of isolates in our country at the moment. There's a few others, 2.75 or Centaurus, been around for a long time, did cause some problems, and I'll show that on a graph. Uh, 12 mutations in the spike gene. BJ1, not quite as interested in, it is detected in our country. 4.6 uh, or a Turner, I think you would say. Again, been around for a while, hasn't really taken off or become dominant. Uh, that's the one we need to worry about, about with Evusheld. And 2.3.20, uh, a more recent one, nine mutations in the spike gene, including a rare one, which is a bit of a cause for concern. And there are some sequences of this one reported in Australia. Now, this is just to show you the complexity of how this virus has changed, shows that the mutations and, and where some of these new ones are. And there's a lot of talk that, uh, you know, Omicron or some of these subvariants have really changed so much from the previous subvariants. It should almost be called a new virus, but we're, we're not doing that at this stage. We're still uh, sticking with Omicron. But they're saying it hasn't changed enough that we'll call it a new variant or move to the next Greek letter. So that's why we've got these subvariants with all these funny names. And if you look at how this has progressed over time, uh, you can see 2.75.4 and BA.5, uh, about three mutations from BA2, and about 20% uh, rough estimate of the growth advantage uh, relative to BA5. You can then see five mutations, 60%, six, 100%, and then you get to that end there where there's eight or even nine mutations and you've got uh, XBB. So that one really has changed or evolved very significantly over the course of the, the pandemic. And this is just another way of demonstrating that. You can see that blue, I think you'd call it blue, shading there in the middle is BA5, and that's starting to decline slowly. This is in Australia. This is the, the sequences analysed. And right at the bottom, um, some of those new ones are, are starting to increase. So far from dominant in our country, but it certainly is clear that things are changing. And if we just look at how that's played out over time, you can see alpha, delta, and then you can see omicron with BA1, 2, 2.1, 2.1, which was quite significant but didn't really uh, come to the attention of the others. BA5 probably caused our, our most recent spike, 2.75. So you can see it's changed quite a bit over time. And now this graph gets even more complicated with XBB, BQ, etc. 
So what does it mean, the emergence of all these new subvariants? So they've all changed a little bit more relative to their predecessors. They all do seem to progress slightly greater immune evasion, and we need to make sure people understand what that really means. It certainly does not mean our vaccines don't work. It doesn't mean our antibody therapies don't work. Uh, it just means that they work the vaccines, that is, a little bit less well, a little bit. But it also means that protection from past infection is reduced. So things like reinfections become a bit more common. And the way we address that, of course, is to have people up to date with their vaccines. A recent booster often overcomes to a large degree a lot of that immune evasion that we're concerned about. It doesn't look like any of these new subvariants have any changes in disease severity. It's a little bit early and so we're still putting together lots of different pieces of information, but it doesn't look like there's any change in disease severity in either direction. A lot of people like to assume it's just becoming milder. That's not necessarily the case, so we can't assume that. And it's really important to remind people that Omicron was less severe than Delta, but there was a lot of things that contributed there. It certainly wasn't mild and a lot of the reduced severity, the reduced hospitalisations and particularly the reduced intensive care admissions and deaths we've seen in more recent time is because we do have people that are vaccinated and a lot of people had infections as well to further boost that immunity. Not suggesting people should try and get infected, far from it, but this concept of hybrid immunity where a fully vaccinated person still gets a breakthrough infection that's obviously going to be of less severe uh, intensity than had they not been vaccinated just provides another little boost to that protection and they're, they're the people that are probably the, the most protected in our population at any one time. Antivirals remain effective at this stage. Talk about mutations affecting how they work uh, or that those antivirals are driving mutations. That hasn't been borne out by any good quality evidence at this stage. And as I said, our antibody treatments remain effective, particularly Evusheld and for pre-exposure prophylaxis also being used as treatment but not yet approved for that in our country. And BA 4.6 is, uh, is the one that's a bit of an issue there, but there's work being done to look at that. So why are these new variants emerging or perhaps the, the rate of emergence accelerating? Well, it comes down to a fairly uh, obvious set of uh, points here. Case numbers remain high. Every infected person in which the virus is replicating is an opportunity for to make those mistakes or for the virus to combine to form those recombinants. Vaccine equity around the world is awful. There's about a third of people in the world who remain unvaccinated. You can see that map there. It's small, so probably not all that clearly, but the uh, intensity of shading uh, relates to vaccine coverage. And Australia isn't light, it just has no data. Um, but you can see right in the middle there, there are parts of the world where people have had very little, if any, opportunity to get vaccinated. And it's interesting that we see a lot of these new subvariants emerge in places where perhaps the vaccine coverage or the, the uh, other factors relating to health there are, are not so good, perhaps giving the, the virus an extra opportunity. So we do need to look at vaccine equity across the world and, and also in our country and making sure that our booster rates are, are increased. And we've obviously, over the course of all this, relaxed all of our other mitigating strategies. So people's perception of risk has declined, so their ability to change their behaviour or their... their um, their acceptance of changing their behaviour to mitigate that risk has declined as well. And so that translates to reduced mask wearing, for example. And we know masks aren't perfect, but they help at least a little bit, particularly if worn well. Um, test, trace, isolate and quarantine, well, those strategies have essentially been abolished, even to the point where people are not really getting tested, so we're not finding cases. And so that's a big part of what we're seeing in terms of numbers. Uh, and, of course, we don't want um, lockdowns or border restrictions but those measures have been removed. And so we are seeing people travel a lot more. And so the opportunity for, for these new subvariants to be, uh, to be 
to travel around the world and be imported to new countries is obviously greater than it's been at any other stage during the pandemic so far. So, so what should we do? And you know, these are really obvious things. Address misinformation. People saying the pandemic's over, the virus is mild, it's gone away. Well, all those things aren't true. And people saying that a lot of the interventions don't work, well, that's not true as well. We've changed the rules, but that doesn't mean those things didn't work, uh, particularly relating to, to mask wearing, for example. We need to keep people educated, staff as well as patients, and, and focus on those key remaining strategies. So while we don't have all those rules anymore, what we need to make sure people understand that they, those interventions do still work. We just want people to do it on a voluntary basis. Boosters, mask wearing, we should really keep doing this, I think, and facilitating that. Make sure there's still supply, maybe at entrance points, clinical environments, etc. Make sure people understand it's still a good thing to wear moving forward, particularly if you're high risk or in a high risk environment. We still want people to get tested and particularly people who are high risk and would be eligible for therapies. They work better the quicker they're given. So I've been recommending people maybe have a COVID plan if you're one of those high risk people. Speak to your GP ahead of time, maybe get a request form for a test, know what to do in terms of managing your medical comorbidities and know how you would get access to those therapies as quickly as possible so that we can get those started and also have an escalation strategy. There's a lot of the support networks in the community those phone numbers, hospital in the home programs, virtual wards, etc. A lot of those things have been wound back, so people need to know how they can be uh, safety netted if they do get COVID and they're high risk. Um, we still need to remind people if you have symptoms, even if you don't get tested, that you should stay home till you're well. We tell people that every year with the flu. Not many people adhere to that, but it remains very important with COVID. Um, people who are eligible should definitely get access to pre-exposure prophylaxis. Great way of protecting those who are most vulnerable in our community. And we should still consider things like engineering controls, we don't talk about quite so much, but ventilation, filtration, air purification, etc., still really effective tools and, and good to do that uh, ahead of time and, and to keep up uh, the works uh, in that regard. So, just to summarise, case numbers have gone up across the world and in Australia likely due to those new uh, immune evasive subvariants, as well as changes in how we're managing the pandemic. Some countries have got that under relatively good control relatively quickly, so it's not the same as some of our really huge waves we've seen this year, but it is significant. Our vaccines have improved, but obviously that's not going to do anything if we don't get uh, them into people's arms, both in our country in terms of booster rates, but also across the world. Antivirals remain a really effective tool, even against these new subvariants. Um, the antibody for pre-exposure prophylaxis is also a, a really good uh, tool, unfortunately underutilised at the moment. And the simple message here is that this virus is going to remain a, a challenge for us for the foreseeable future. We really should expect high levels of controls with all these amazing tools we have available. But I think it's uh, complacency and misinformation that are still undermining how much we're utilising those and really threaten for us to be impacted more significantly than we would otherwise. And uh, I'll stop there and just to, to flash up a little plug for a book that I was one of the uh, editors of that's uh, now available if people do want to have a bit more of a look into some aspects of uh, COVID-19. And my email uh, is on there if people want to reach out with any questions. Thank you for your time. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be.
Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.